I invite you to give your attention to God's Word for today. We're in Galatians chapter 4, and we'll read verses 4 and 5. Galatians chapter 4. And while all the candles may not be lit, we are grateful that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The wind may blow out a candle, but the world cannot put out the light of the world, for that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so rejoicing in his name, we give thanks as we read together from the Word of God, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. We give him praise for it. Amen. It was many years ago in one of those innumerable hollows in East Tennessee when a dear soul, a woman dressed pretty much in rags, carrying a precious bundle in her arms, made her way down out of one of those hollows to a larger stream until eventually she found herself in what would be termed civilization and appeared at the door of the manse of the Presbyterian Church on the outskirts of Knoxville, Tennessee, knocking at the door. Pastor and his wife on Christmas Eve had just settled themselves in front of the fire, rose to answer the door, and this dear soul, in as much of a voice as she could muster, said, I hear that y'all help people, and collapsed into the pastor's arms, at which point he discovered that she was carrying a baby, a baby that clearly was very ill, just as surely as the mother was, and so pastor and wife gathered them together, got them in the car, and rushed them to the hospital where medicine was administered and both mother and child were saved. A prescription from a doctor was successful in treating the illness that both of them suffered from, and they were saved. I know that many of us have been frustrated by pharmacies and prescriptions alike. It's difficult sometimes to keep up with medicine that has to be taken. But how thankful we are in this age of medical science that so much can be accomplished through seemingly little. But it is for us to understand in this season of the year that there is a prescription prescribed by God himself. And that prescription declares to us just what a drastic situation we find ourselves in. It is a prescription for a humanity, and it is drastic because indeed we suffer from an extreme condition. When we look at Galatians and we see the man of God, the Apostle Paul, dealing with the matter that is before us, and it is before all of humanity throughout all ages, how is it possible that sinners, the unrighteous, could ever be deemed acceptable to God? How is it that with the law in place condemning us, and indeed with the elemental principles of the world, declaring the righteousness and holiness of God. How can any be made right with God? Our world attempts to answer that question by minimizing the condition, by telling us, well, the real problem is is that you suffer from a lack of self-esteem. And 
disabuses itself of all uses of words like sin and wickedness and unrighteousness. And so let's just talk in terms of the human condition and let's pretend that it's not as bad as it really is. And when we come to that conclusion, deciding that we really are not as bad off as the Bible says that we are, then Christmas becomes just another one of those stories that helps to motivate us and encourage us, maybe warm our hearts like one of those volumes of chicken soup for the soul that were so popular back in the day. It's just a matter of encouragement. But when we're honest with ourselves and when our ears are open to the truth and our hearts receive it, we realize that our condition is one of utter hopelessness and from which there is no hope except for divine intervention. Christmas declares to us that God has intervened come into our situation that is one of utter hopelessness because we cannot extricate ourselves. You see, no amount of intellectual advancement or scientific achievement or any other sort of advancement can ever deliver us. We're often told that any one of these things are the answer. Through medical science or something like it, we're told that eventually we'll be able to achieve immortality. We'll be able to live forever. If we can't live in our own bodies, they're going to transplant our head to something and our, our brains are going to continue on in some sort of, oh, I don't know, something like artificial intelligence. I told them I need artificial intelligence because what I actually have doesn't fit the bill so often. Is that really immortality? Is that really achievable? No, it's not. I don't care how far we advance. Scripture tells us, and we'll find it to be the case, that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Death will come. There's no amount of advancement for which I am grateful. I am thankful for scientific and medical advancements. I'm grateful for education. I'm grateful for all the things that, when rightly applied, serve to better our lives. But none of them are the true remedy for the condition we find ourselves in. And if you find yourself today increasingly coming up against the thought or the notion of being helpless, you're not in a bad place. You're in just the right place for recognizing this rescue that God has prescribed through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the world would have you ignore that. Remember? Don't think in those terms. You're worthy. You're good. You can do it. Live your dreams. And all those phrases that are communicated to us through the various self-help methods and motivational speeches. But deep down, we know that something is so profoundly wrong that feeling better about myself isn't the remedy. The only possible remedy is the one God's prescribed. And he's determined that prescription in advance. It's been written out. You see, the Apostle Paul in this text points us to there being an appointed time when the fullness of time had come. It tells us that God had something planned far in the past, not something that he did in reaction to our condition. He didn't simply come up with it on the fly. Our rescue has been planned. It has been purposed. And God has executed it in the person of his son. And that prescription in the person of Jesus arrived at precisely the right time and in the right manner to succeed.
seed. The entire ministry of the Lord Jesus bears testimony to this. He repeatedly, in more than one way, talks about an appointed time. We see it very early in his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says that Jesus came, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. He talked more than once about how that there should not be too much said about a particular healing or miracle that he had performed because he said, my time has not yet come. The time was appointed for him to die on the cross. All of that was planned beforehand. And Jesus was very careful to stick with the Father's plan. And he wanted nothing to deter. And if there isn't anything else that we learn from this passage, it is this. That God says what he means, and he means what he says. He gave his son. He sent forth his son. There was absolutely nothing that could happen other than God sending forth his son. There was no more chance of the son's coming being prevented than of me standing out here this morning and preventing the sun from rising. Or, more to the point, preventing the earth from turning so that the sun appeared to rise. I was completely incapable of doing anything about the appearance of the sun over the eastern sky. And there's absolutely nothing that anyone or anything could have done to have prevented the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says that he sent forth his son, nothing other than the sending forth of his son could have happened as it occurred in the fullness of time. What does that mean? Well, we've heard read this morning from Daniel how that Gabriel, isn't that interesting? Gabriel, centuries before, proclaimed good news to Daniel, and then he shows up on the scene to proclaim good news to Mary. This same Gabriel pointed to times, to seasons, to series of sevens that must be fulfilled in which particular events would transpire. And we don't have time to drill down on that. That's a whole series of messages in and of itself. But the point is, everything was planned out, and the Lord Jesus Christ came in fulfillment of that prophecy and the other declarations which God made. He came at just the right time. Humanly speaking, we, we know in terms of cultural and political conditions that these were ideally suited for Jesus' arrival because of the way the world was situated at the time. There was something like a universal trade language. If people didn't know Greek, they knew enough of it in order to be able to carry out basic commerce. And isn't it interesting that our New Testament being written in Greek made it so that people everywhere throughout that Roman Empire would be able to read it or at least have some basic understanding of the message. Isn't it interesting that the political cohesiveness of the Roman Empire, though it was not good in and of itself, nevertheless provided the platform as historians refer to the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Now, that peace came about through the pressing down of an iron boot, as it were, on the necks of those who were subservient to it. But nevertheless, that political context made possible the dissemination of the gospel. And isn't it interesting that when Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed and a census be taken for that purpose, that one of the results was that Two unknown individuals from the unlikeliest of places, Nazareth, had to traverse many miles to the small, inconsequential town of Bethlehem 
in order to register there. And it just so happens, right, that while there, she brought forth her firstborn son. You see, Caesar Augustus, powerful ruler of the Roman Empire, becomes incidental in this story because he's simply an instrument in God's hands with all of that power. And one of the purposes was so that Christ would be born in Bethlehem just as the prophets foretold. Commercial, political, cultural conditions were ideally suited so that when Jesus came, the good news was certain to spread. And the star, that mysterious star that appears, which wise men or magi saw in the east, indicated precise timing. When it appeared, telling them, and how did they know? talked about this past week in a couple of Bible studies. How did those magi know what they knew? How did they come to the conclusion that that star was a proclamation of the arrival of the king of the Jews? But based on whatever information they had, they made the journey. And remember what made them significant was not their own standing. We don't even know who they were. We don't have any reliable source that tells us their names. But they showed up in Jerusalem looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. It was because of the object of their journey that we deem them to be important. And so that star testifies to the fact that God had an appointed time for the arrival of his son. Yes, Jesus said more than once, my time has not yet come. And then finally he did say, my time is at hand. When he would be crucified on the cross, dying for our sins, paying the penalty for our transgressions. He was sent forth by God yet born of woman, born under the law. Both things are true. The eternal Son of God, having always existed throughout all eternity past, at a point in time in history becomes a human being, conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and brought forth by her when she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Isn't it interesting that that's all we know about the birth scene of the Lord Jesus? For all of our Christmas plays and sermons that have talked about an inn and an innkeeper and a stable and all of those other things, we don't know that those other things even existed. The word inn can simply mean there was no place for them. What we know is very simple. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. Three points of fact. What does it tell us? He came. Don't worry about the trappings. Don't worry about what your nativity scene looks like on your coffee table. If the wise men ought to be there or if they ought to be over on the bureau somewhere. Don't worry about any of that. He came. Don't you know what good news that is? That even though we know very little about all of the particulars the singular event that matters is that he came just as God said he would. Sent forth by God, born of woman. To do what? To redeem us. To rescue us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you see that? At the right time. Not just any time, but at the right time. You see, God has a plan and purpose that he hasn't revealed to all of us. He hasn't revealed to us the timetable of events. Here we are, having experienced Christ's coming, His advent, 
And yet we await his second advent. When is that going to occur? At just precisely the right time. When is that time? I don't have a clue, but I know it's coming. Just as surely as he came the first time, he's coming back. And just as surely as nothing thwarted his first arrival, nothing will thwart his return. The kingdom of God is advancing. It doesn't matter what political opposition there may be, philosophical opposition. It doesn't matter what may arise in an attempt to thwart God's purposes in this world. The kingdom of God is advancing because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not nor will it ever overcome the light for he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, at just the right time. Not only did he come, but he died for the ungodly. Who's that? If you really need me to answer that question. <laughs> Perhaps not a medical examination, but a thorough self-examination may be in store for you. In recognizing our natural condition, apart from the intervening grace of God, we know. We know it in our hearts that left to our own devices, left in our own condition, we are the ungodly. Christ came for us. I'm grateful for the pastor of Lake Point Church in Rockwall, Texas, our nephew. Nathan Farley is on staff there, and the lead pastor, Josh Howerton, preached a sermon recently. My wife was listening to it. You know, she has to get good sermons from somewhere, so... <laughs> And he did preach a wonderful message. He pointed to and reminded us of, and those who were listening, of a man named David Carnes. Do you remember David Carnes? 9-11, 11th of September, 2001, when planes crashed into the World Trade Center, when those two towers came crashing to the ground, that unthinkable event that continues to reverberate even to our present day. I don't know about you. It's an extraordinary thing in my own experience. I cannot tell you how many times in the course of a week that I look at my watch and the time will be precisely 9-11. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's something subconscious. Maybe my brain is ticking off the time and I'm, I'm looking. I don't know why that is, but those events continue to reverberate. David Carnes had served over 20 years as a staff sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. And he was working in, a, in an office in Connecticut, civilian work as an accountant, when he got the word that those planes had crashed. And for some reason, David, who had just come to know the Lord Jesus as his Savior only months prior, felt compelled to go to Manhattan to the scene of that awful calamity and do what he could to rescue people. So he got in his Porsche, he drove home, he uh, took off his civilian clothes, he put on his marine uniform, his fatigues. By the way, he stopped by a barber shop and got a high and tight. <laughs> Why he took time to do that, I don't know, but he did. He was determined to show up at Ground Zero as a Marine. They let him through all the blockades he had on a uniform. Staff Sergeant, come on through. He went there for one purpose, believing in his heart that he would not survive he nevertheless went in order to rescue whomever he could. 
because he saw that calamity unfolding and he knew that people were needy. Going into the wreckage, going into all of that awful calamity that was that terrible tragedy as he prayed time and again asking God for help and God provided. He provided people at just the right time. And lo and behold, there were voices. Two police officers of the Port Authority who had jumped into an elevator shaft when they heard the building collapse. The one place where they could have been protected. And hearing their voices, David Carnes prayed for help and help came. At one point, one of the rescuers was going to cut a steel girder. And he said, when I cut this girder, the wreckage is going to fall on us. And David Carnes said, cut it. At least we'll all go together. He cut the girder. The building stayed up. The wreckage stayed in place. And those officers were rescued. What has the Lord Jesus done for us? But laid aside all the privileges of his deity. Coming in the person of one of us. A little baby, a helpless infant, who was laying in a manger in Bethlehem, backwater town, no place in particular, in order to perform a rescue operation. How is it that we are saved? Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved as those voices crying out from the wreckage. Can anyone hear us? When we call on his name, we can be confident that he hears us. We can know that in our heart of hearts, when we realize we are the ungodly, we are the ones in the wreckage who are destined to die in the collapse. And yet, by divine intervention, a rescue like no other has been performed as he has been sent by God, born of woman, to redeem those who are under the law and by inference the elemental principles of the world even those who never had delivered to them the divinely inspired law nevertheless have those elemental principles that condemn us. And he rescues us from that. He is the only possible remedy. And having arrived at precisely the right time and in the right manner, he has succeeded beyond all comprehension. This glorious prescription achieves astounding results. Sinners are redeemed. Not only are we redeemed, but Paul tells us in this passage, in the, in the context surrounding that, that, that we even are, are adopted as his sons. Not only does he rescue us, but he makes us part of his own family, lavishing such love upon us that he counts us as his sons. Now, ladies, I want you to stay with me because this is important. We can change the language here to make it, as we say, inclusive and simply say children. But I want you to try to transport yourself back to the first century. Who inherited the estate when the father died? It was the son. Sons were the heirs. Sons had the rights and privileges of family and of the name. What God is telling us here is not that he is sexist. What he is declaring here is that all of us, male and female, receive the rights and privileges of sonship. Because you see, 
There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter your place of origin. It doesn't matter what economic ability or lack thereof you have. As a child of God, you are a child of God. You have all the rights and privileges that all other children have. Oh, what a wonderful truth that is. That's why the angel said, for there is good news. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. And we continue to rejoice as we think of the way in which God pursues and rescues and accomplishes his purpose in redeeming us and making us his heirs. That's why the angelic band declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And we continue to proclaim glory to God in the highest. There is no better news than what we read here and what we've experienced when we've come to know Christ as our Savior. And what greater encouragement to know that the one who began, who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Think of it in this way. Inasmuch as at the right time and in the right way, God sent forth his son, born of woman, the Virgin Mary, child miraculously conceived in her by the Holy Spirit and brought forth in that sinless fashion, living a sinless life in order to die an atoning death, that just as it was the case that absolutely no power, political, spiritual, or otherwise, could prevent the arrival of the Lord Christ and the completion of his task on earth, so nothing will thwart God's purpose in accomplishing redemption in you. When the work has begun, and we come, to the real, we come to the realization of that work a little bit when we accept Christ and as we grow in the knowledge of Him, but we all need to know that it began in eternity past, and He's going to complete it, and He's going to carry us safely home. And so the one who has come to perform the rescue laid aside all the privileges and he put on the clothing of flesh in order to come into the wreckage even at the giving of his own life in order to extricate us from a disaster from which we could never rescue ourselves. And no matter how many times you hear it, no matter how many times you think of it, I am telling you here and now, it is the greatest news you will ever know. No other good news can equal it. Oh, I've, I've been around when people have had good news. I've seen and heard our daughter ring the bell when radiation treatment had come to hand. I saw our son kick a soccer ball across the field after he had recovered from a disseminated staph infection. I've seen people walk out of the hospital who were given no hope. But at the same time, I've seen others who have succumbed to cancer and upheld the hands of saints who have left this life in a hospital bed and didn't walk out. But I'm telling you here and now, there's nothing deficient in their rescue. For those who die in the Lord are with Him and even now are before His face all because of what Jesus has done. 
whatever temporary rescue, whatever temporary good news you may know in this life and in the here and now, just remember that the greatest of news is that Christ has achieved and accomplished the real remedy. Not merely delivering us from cold and cancer, but delivering us from sin and the condemnation that rightly would be ours because he came into the wreckage and he took that condemnation on himself even to the point of death. And yet, rising from the grave, he proclaims forever and always there is victory in him. Yes, he experienced defeat in order to achieve victory. The defeat was only a perceived loss, not a real one. It appeared that he was defeated when, in fact, he was victorious. And the empty grave proclaims it. Yes, someone said in recent years that the symbol of Christianity should be the manger, not the cross. This particular clergy person in the United Kingdom was decrying the way in which that symbol of violence had come to symbolize Christianity and she was uh, insinuating that we ought to think in terms of the manger and a baby and of hope rather than of that, that bloody symbol. But listen to me. When you look at the manger, you cannot look at it without considering that there is a shadow of a cross even at the birth of Christ. That there would be the piercing of hearts. That there would be that suffering and anguish that he would endure. No, the cross is at the heart of the gospel. But we get to the cross because there was once upon a time a manger. That little child, the hope of the world, and the one who succeeded and prevailed as no one else could. Oh, what news. So yeah, candles lit, candles go out, light bulbs turn on, light bulbs burn out. But the light of the world will forever shine. And even in heaven at this moment, as those who have gone before us now know, as the light shines there, there is not even a shadow. There is no darkness. There is no sin. There is no death. Because Jesus has come. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. And his name is Christ the Lord. He has come, and he's coming back. Bless his name. Father in heaven, as we praise you and thank you for all that you've accomplished, which would take more time than we have on this earth, we're grateful that in eternity we will continue to learn of your kindness shown forth through the Lord Jesus and the accomplishing of this great work of his. Oh, Father, we pray that we may be so saturated with the gospel that in the living of our lives and even in the simple incidental things that we say, that in some way, some manner, we may bear testimony to your beloved Son, the unspeakable gift who has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation so that today we may live in the light of his coming and of his return. May his name forever be glorified and magnified in us, for we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Angels, we have heard on high. Let's stand together and sing to God's glory.
keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.